We do welcome you to our services. Pray the Lord will bless his word, our heart, mind, understanding. Pray that in what time we have here this morning, that uh, and I thought about it on the way here this morning, uh, every time that I stand up to preach the gospel, I have but one concern, uh, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified and honored in his person. And in his work is God sent Messiah. That's 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 the only message we have. You know, I, Paul, when he wrote in First Corinthians chapter two, verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, he meant exactly that. There's only one message. And those that are born of God, those that are regenerated, converted by God the Holy Spirit, they never tire of hearing this message of full, free, eternal salvation through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank God for this without any conditions, without any conditions on the sinner at any time, to any degree, in any way. That's salvation by grace. I'd like for you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. I thought about what I was going to preach on this morning. And I know that most religious organizations across the globe today, since it's Mother's Day, uh, they preached a traditional, what would be considered a Mother's Day message. Well, I've done it in the past, but I'm not going to do it today. I was sitting there this week thinking about what I was going to preach on, and I had a dear brother in Christ send me a linked to a message by a guy that has now been dead for probably since back in the late 60s that I listened to a lot of his sermons. And the name of the sermon was The the Lordship of Christ was the name of the message. And he told me, he said, listen to this. And I listened to it, and I tell you what, to be honest with you, I was in shock as I listened to the message. This was a guy who Uh, claimed to believe and preach free and sovereign grace based on the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this message, it it just reeked of salvation by works. It was one of the most awful things I've ever heard in my life. And as he and I, I called him up and we began to discuss what he had heard and what he had sent me the link to. And he made reference to the fact, he said, you know, when I was reformed, and that's what I was, I was reformed when I heard the gospel. I was a quote-unquote Calvinist, whatever that means. I don't even like the term anymore. But I had all that knowledge stacked into my head, and I, like every other religious person on the planet, I thought I was saved before I was saved until I was saved. And then the gospel came across my path, and everything changed. And he said, you know, I too, and he's, he's a pastor too, a fellow pastor, and he told me, he said, I was reformed, and I had all these things in my mind as well. And he said, one of the first messages I ever heard that provoked me to do some real serious study, he said it was a message. He said, I can't even remember what the name of it is. He said it had the word either differ or difference in it. And I told him, I said, the name of it was wherein do we differ or the difference. Both of them was preached by my father in the faith, Henry Mahan. Back in the 70s and 80s is when it was preached. And so I thought, you know, what, what better way for us to have an opportunity to seriously, scripturally, and honestly consider wherein do we differ? Is there a difference? I think that would be the better question. 
And I picked this passage here in Acts chapter 24, and it's just basically kind of a jump-off point because I'm going to, we're going to ask and answer five questions this morning concerning wherein do we differ from everybody else religiously. But here's the thing. Most people who deny there is only one true gospel, and that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. People cannot in this generation, and they will not honestly define the gospel. Even Reformed people won't define it. It's so vague. It's, it's, I told somebody this week, the way they define the gospel is like nailing jello to a wall. It's impossible. They do not go to the scriptures. They always come back to something emotional, something mythical, something ethereal, something that is about a feeling or a sentiment or some experience that they had in their life. But most of these people who will not, who in actuality deny the reality that there's only one true gospel, that is to say God's gospel, they seem to, when they encounter somebody that stands dogmatically and uncompromisingly that there is but one gospel, the gospel that declares Christ's blood and his righteousness alone is the only ground, hope, or cause of salvation, they seem to be of the opinion that somehow we have made something into a mountain that's really a molehill. They seem to think that there's really no difference between what they believe and what they teach and what I believe, and what I preach. They express it something like this. They say, well, we're all trying to get to heaven. And they are. And since everybody, and this is where they get you at, they say, since everybody interprets the scriptures differently, and they, they actually think they got a scriptural reference for that, <laughs> that, that no scripture is a private interpretation, but look at that in the context no scriptures of private interpretation doesn't mean that you get to interpret it different than what I interpret it. It means you can't lift it out of its context, just one verse. And that's what they do. We're going to talk about it in one of these points this morning. They have built an entire theology out of John 3.16. No scriptures of a private interpretation. They say everybody interprets the scriptures differently, and God doesn't really care that much about these small doctrinal differences. Well, maybe, maybe you're of that opinion this morning. Maybe it doesn't make any difference to you. Maybe you're thinking, what, what, what's the big deal? Why make such a fuss over this thing? I tell you, if that's your opinion this morning, I'd encourage you to carefully listen to what Paul said to those at Corinth. He said, would to God, that you would bear with me in my folly. And indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity, that word simplicity means the singleness. The singleness that's in Christ. For he that cometh, now listen, and they didn't tell me this in, when I, in my former religion. If he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom you've not, whom, whom we have not, who Paul said, we, if this is the Christ that we preach, they come preaching another Jesus. Or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or listen to this, or another gospel 
Now listen, if he's saying there's another gospel, there is one gospel somewhere. You understand that, right? And he's saying that you've received another gospel which you've not accepted, you might bear with him. Now look here at Acts chapter 24. Here we see the Apostle Paul. And what's the situation he's in? He's he's a, a prisoner in chains. And he's standing before a Roman governor whose name's Felix. And as he stands before this Roman governor, Felix, you know what he does? He preaches the gospel to him. He preaches the gospel to him. And you got to remember, why is, he in, why is Paul in prison? Why is he in chains? Why is he in front of this man? And who was responsible for putting him here? Well, we know absolutely positively considered God had actually put him there. It was according to God's sovereign will and purpose. But who actually was the ones that sent him this direction? Put him before this man. He was there because religious men, moral men, sincere men, hated what he preached. And since they hated what he preached, because listen, they formally loved him. Whatever he was doing before, everybody was his friend. Now that he preaches the one true gospel... Everybody's his enemy. So they not only hated what he preached, just like our Lord before him, they hated him as well. Look at verses 10 through 14 here in this chapter. Acts 24, verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou been of many years a judge between this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me, because they said he was trying to subvert Rome, just like they accused our Lord of. But this I confess. Now listen, here's where we're going. This is, this is the text. This I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. Who was calling what Paul preached heresy? Who's doing that? Who hated and despised what Paul preached? Folks, it it wasn't those that were openly immoral. Our Lord was the friend of who? Publicans and sinners. It wasn't those that were openly immoral and unreligious, was it? Who was it? It was the Pharisees, of which he was formerly one. It was the Sadducees, those who supposedly were the leaders and spiritual teachers in national Israel. Yet here we see God's true preacher, his servant, without any apology and without any fear. You know what he does? He stands there before this Roman governor and he declares the true gospel to him. But here's the thing. What did the preaching of this true gospel do to this great Roman leader? Look down at verse 25. And has he reasoned of righteousness? What did he reason with him of? Righteousness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, remember what he said in John chapter 16? He said, it's expedient that I go away. If I don't go away, who can't come? The comforter can't come. 
And he says, when the comforter comes, what's the first thing the comforter, his role is in this ministry of the gospel? He will reprove the world of what? Righteousness. What does he reason with him? What's, what's our message, folks? See, that's the thing. What are they out there talking about today? Listen, I could stand up here and I talk about mothers all day long. I'm thankful I had a mother. I loved my mother as much as you loved your mother. But I tell you what, me standing up here talking about goodness and morality and sincerity of women or men or anybody will not do a sinner any good. I saw one of the signs again in front of a church this week that basically had the same premise that every, all the rest of them have. The best sermon you can preach is which one? That's some pretty pitiful sermons. You tell me how, if you, if you could live up to my, whatever my standard is and be whatever you think I am, you are still infinitely short of righteousness. Didn't tell you that in church, did they? It's do your best. Try hard. There's not one place in this book where God says try anything. He says do it. Do it. And if you can't do it, you're done. You hear me? The wages of sin, death. You have one sin in your life. One sin. Not, not, and it doesn't have to be a, a, what you consider a bad sin. One breakage of one's God, God's holy law, forever condemn you. You're, you're, you're unrighteous before this God. He reasoned with him of righteousness, of temperance, and of judgment to come. And notice what happened to Felix. Felix trembled. He trembled. Here's a Roman governor with a chained prisoner before him. And he trembled. Why is that? Because the true gospel of God, when it's preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, what is it? It's the power of God unto salvation. See, Paul didn't, didn't argue with him. He didn't debate with him. He just simply declared the gospel to him. And that's exactly what we're commanded to do. Paul told young Timothy, preach the word. Pre that word, word is logos. Preach the logo. Preach Christ. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, which means expose by bringing to life. Rebuke, which means to show honor to. And exhort, which means to call to one side. Call people to where? Where do I call them to? To the church? To Grace Baptist Church? To, to the front? To the baptismal pool? To the Lord's table? No, where do we call them? We call them to Christ. Look unto Jesus, the author and completer of faith. And I tell you what, you read what Paul said to that young man, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. I don't see anything in this verse written by Paul telling him to argue or debate or apologize to anybody for the gospel he's preached. Just preach it because that's the power of God and salvation. This morning, I want to strive as best as I possibly can to show you the difference between what I believe and love and have dogmatically preached and I know there's some people that are sitting here that have been with me since the beginning. And they, they will verify that what I say is true. It's the same message that I have believed and loved and preached since the Lord first revealed it to me and in me over 36 years ago.
I've changed my mind on a lot of things over 36 years. But I tell you one thing I've never changed on. I have never changed on what the gospel is. And I never will know what it is. And I want to show you the difference between what I preach and what I believe and what I dogmatically defend in opposition to what the world believes and what the world loves and what the world preaches. And there is a difference. And it's not just a little difference of doctrine. It's the difference between life and death. I'm telling you what, faith comes by hearing. We know that. And hearing comes by the word of God. But the question is, is this. How shall they call on him of whom they have not heard? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they call on him except one do what? Preach. And how shall they preach except they be sent? And then he said this, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach, let's see, glad tidings of good things. I'm going to tell you some good things. I'm not going to put you on a straight and narrow. I'm going to point you to Christ. That's all I can do. Point you to him who loved his people and came here and suffered and bled Here's, here's, here's the difference. Where do we differ? First of all, we differ with this religious world with what happened in eternity. Boy, now this is, this is, the, this is the capstone. on we, we differ with what happened in eternity. Here's what it always comes back to. What did the scriptures tell us? Not my mama said or my daddy said or some old preacher said. Not even what Richard Warmack says. It's what saith the Lord. What do the scriptures teach us? What do they tell us? I tell you what they tell us. They tell us without apology. Listen to this. Before the foundation of the world, before Adam or man was ever seen as fallen because of rebellion, God chose, according to his goodwill and pleasure, a particular number of people. Uh-huh. That's not fair. What happened in eternity? The election of grace happened in eternity. And that's not just something that I came up with in my mind. It's in the scriptures. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Here we go. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Get this right. According to the good pleasure of his own will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the blood. I didn't have but one verse. That's all I need right there. But I got more. <laughs> I've got an entire scripture. I've got a book that backs all this. Most religious church members, you know, they don't have a clue about the election of grace. And many of them don't even think, they don't even know it's in the Bible. You, you talk to most religious people about election, they think you're talking about a political election. 
No, we're talking about what God... Listen, I know this much in Ephesians. He talks about the faith of God's elect, His chosen people. There's those who, who spent some time, even in religion, spent some time reading and studying the Scriptures and having seen the word election in the Scriptures. They put their own depraved human spin on interpreting. This is how the human mind interprets what election is. They think that election is God looking down through time, looking down through time, seeing what men and women would do, that is to say they'd believe or they'd become moral or they'd become sincere, dedicated, start going to church, and then based on what he saw, he chose them. When I was getting your Bibles imprinted this last week, I was in the local Christian bookstore. And they had a series of commentaries, their little Paul Small paperback on all the New Testament. It was by a guy that I used to listen to when I was in false religion back in the early 80s, somebody I highly respected back, back then. He was on, he was on uh, the K-Lamb radio over in Shreveport, Louisiana. I always listened to him going to work out at UOP every morning. And uh, I picked up his commentary on Romans. Now, it was said, commentary on the epistle to Romans. He went to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and quit. And that was the entire comment. Because here's the thing. He, he, he's got, he can't deal with Romans 9, 10, and 11, truthfully. So we just write a commentary on what we can agree with. But when he got to Romans 8, that's exactly what this, this guy had a doctor's degree in theology. And he said, some people think that election is God actually choosing a people. He said, he does choose a people, but he chooses them because of what he sees them doing. Now listen to me. <laughs> I want to make this as clear as I can possibly make it. That's not the scriptural teaching of election. It's just not. Matter of fact, you know what that is? That's absolute heresy. Because it makes this thing a salvation condition not on a God, but it, it makes it conditioned on the fact that God learned something. It makes him a reactionary God, him responding to what he sees men and women do. The scriptures will not bear that out. The Apostle Paul, he uses the word election, elect, and chosen. And those three words in the original form in the Greek deny and destroy all those false ideas and misconceptions about God looking down through time and seeing what men would do and then based on what men would do, then he made his decision. Those words translated election and elect and chosen, it's always the same Greek word. It means electos. And it means the called out one. Or to pick out. Pick out. Here's, here's, here's three verses. Let me read them to you real quick. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, when? From the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. What's that? That's regeneration. That's what the Spirit does. He regenerates. And... 
belief of the truth. What's that? That's conversion. We do not have faith by nature. Faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, faith itself is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit in regeneration conversion. And we do, we do believe, but we only believe because why? We've been given the faith of God's elect. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, 14. He writes to a young man, Timothy, and he said, who hath saved us and called us with unholy calling. Listen to this now. God looked down through time, and he saw what we would do, and then based on what he saw us doing, then he chose us. Hold on. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. You see that? Not according to our works. Well, then how did he choose us? Here it is. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. When was it given to us? Before the world began. Deny the scriptures. You can deny me all you want. Show me where you can disprove that. Here's one more. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. What did, they, what, did they, what did they hear that made them glad? Paul had preached the gospel to the Jews, and what did the Jews do? They rejected it. And Paul said, seeing you judge yourselves unworthy of the truth, we turn now and preach God's gospel to who? To the Gentiles, to where it was always purposed to go. It says, when they heard that, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. This is Acts 13, 48. And as many as were to eternal life. How many? As many as were ordained to eternal life. What'd they do? Believed. Every one of them. How many? As many as were ordained to eternal life. What I'm saying where we differ from them is this. God sovereignly chose a people according to his own good pleasure. Read Romans chapter 9. The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger as it is written. This is before the foundation of the world, before they've done any good, before they've done any evil. It was said unto her, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That's before. You get it, get it right. That's before they've done any good, or any evil. That's not fair. Shall the creature say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? Actually, it's shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have thou made me thus? And see, his, his choice has absolutely nothing to do with anything seen. Thank God. If he's seen me doing anything good, what else has he saw us doing? <laughs> you ever thought about that? Oh, he saw me believe. Well, I tell you what, what about after you did whatever you call believing? If you, if you're, since you came to your religious profession, have your thoughts always been perfect and pure, honest and sincere? If you always kept the first and great commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, you always done that? He sees that too. You better thank God that it ain't based on what we do. 
Here's the second thing. We differ what happened on that, in that garden. And if you know anything of the scripture, you know what garden I'm talking about. We're talking about the garden of Eden, what we're talking about. But you've got to ask yourself this question. Do you know what happened in that garden? What actually occurred in that time frame? Did, did Adam, our representative, and his entire posterity, did he spiritually destroy us or did he just spiritually wound us? Did he just make us a little limp and a little crimpled? Or did he kill us? I wrote this into my notes yesterday afternoon. It, if, if you're wrong on the fall, I stole this from somebody. I know I got it from somebody. If you're wrong on the fall, you're wrong on it all. You don't understand that by what Adam did, we're dead in trespasses and sin. You're going to be wrong on everything else in this book. And you will be. Here's the long and the short of it. When Adam fell in that garden, as our representative man, he along with all mankind without exception, including God's elect, those chosen by God the Father in everlasting covenant of grace, they immediately were rendered what? Dead in trespasses and sin. They all come into this world doing what? They go forth from the womb speaking lies. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all men have sinned, where? In Adam. All of them. This religious world seems to be of the opinion that there's a spark of life in everybody. And all you've got to do is somehow or another fan that spark up, and it'll burst into a flame. But folks, that's just not true. Men are dead spiritually. I'm talking about graveyard dead. All men and women by nature is truly dead spiritually as Lazarus was dead physically in that tomb when our Lord Jesus Christ stood outside of it and called him to life. Paul wrote to those at Ephesus, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. If you want to see what our condition is, I'm not going to read it. Write down these verses and go read them for yourself. Go read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through verse 18. And then tell me about how we could ever approach this God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. They're all gone out of the way. They're all without understanding. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the third thing. We differ with them on what happened on the cross. This religious world seems to think that Christ's coming and his living and his dying and his being raised again put all men and women without exception in a savable position. And all of us by nature think that think the same thing before regeneration and conversion. They think this. They think God loves everybody. Christ died for everybody. And if you'll fulfill whatever conditions they think you have to fulfill, whether it's faith or repentance, or obedience, and God's obligated to save you. That's not salvation by grace. That's salvation by work. Let me ask you three questions. Who was on that cross? Hmm? Who was there? I think a better question would be, why was he there? Here it is. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You think about that. 
It took God himself to save us. Wasn't no mere man. Who was it? It was Emmanuel. Being interpreted who? God with us. John told his writers, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every, every person who preaches, <clears throat> that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that what? The Messiah, the anointed of God, the deliverer, the redeemer, is come in the flesh, they're of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus, Jehovah our Savior, Christ, the Messiah, is come in the flesh, is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist whereby you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. If a man or a woman denies that Christ is God in human flesh, you're lost. Here's the second why was he on that cross? Why did he go through what he went through? So God could be both just and justifier of the ungodly. Isaiah said, The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He, Christ, not me, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. In Isaiah 43, 25, he said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, and he did it not for my sake, did it for my, his own sake. Therefore, I will not remember your sins. And in that grand passage in Isaiah 45, Isaiah says this, Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. What are you, God? A just God and Savior. There is none beside me. Which one? A just God and a Savior. Look unto me. Look unto me who? A just God and a Savior. And be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself... The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me, who? A just God and a Savior. Shall every knee bow, every tongue shall swear, surely shall one say, what shall we all say? In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him. This Christ shall be ashamed. Here's another thing. Was Christ the propitiation for his people's sins? The atonement. Did Christ actually redeem his people from their sins? Or did he merely make redemption possible? That's the question we have to answer. John answered it for us. Here ends love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son the propitiation for our sins. What? Propitiation is perfect satisfaction. And he is the perfect satisfaction for his people. Folks, these are scriptural questions that demand an answer. And I'll tell you this much. If the Christ you claim to be your Savior didn't actually redeem you, didn't actually become a ransom for you, 
Didn't it actually bring you to God through his perfect work and vicarious death? It's what Paul talked about when he wrote over in 2 Corinthians. It's another Jesus and it's another gospel. Here's the fourth thing. We differ from this world concerning what happens in regeneration and conversion. Turn over to John chapter 3. Now, the very idea that our Lord Jesus Christ conveyed to Nicodemus concerning being born again ought to forever settle this idea in our mind. How did Nicodemus respond to Christ's words when he told him twice, you must be born again? How did he respond? How can these things be? How can these things be? And see, we've already seen all men and women without exception. What are they? They're dead in trespasses and sin, graveyard dead, with no spark of life in them whatsoever. And in this truth of the new birth, what do we see? The third glorious person of the Trinity performing his work. God the Father had a work. What was his work? His work was to choose sinners and predestinate them to eternal life. The son's work was to actually redeem and justify sinners by his obedience unto death as a surety and representative of all those God the Father gave him in the everlasting covenant of grace. And now God the Holy Spirit comes to his work. What was his work? To regenerate or to make alive those God the Father's chose in the everlasting covenant of grace and all those Christ the Son redeemed by his obedience unto death. Peter put it like this, seeing you have purified your souls in the obeying of the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men is a flower of grass, the grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. What has to be preached? The gospel must be preached. Most religious people think that the new birth is something that occurs after a person's accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I know that to be the case because one of the most famous evangelists of the last 50 years, he wrote a book telling men and women how to be born again. But here's the thing that we have to think about. How can somebody that's dead in trespasses and sin give themselves life? And if they can do that, if a man can believe and he's dead in trespasses and sin, why does he need to be born again? Those are pretty simple questions that demand an answer. See, here's the thing. Regeneration and conversion, what is it? It's the work of the Spirit in the heart, mind, soul, and understanding of His people, whereby He brings them to see Christ and His righteousness alone as their only ground, hope, and cause of salvation. And that's the difference between what we believe and what they believe. But then here's the last thing. We differ with them concerning this all-important question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Matthew chapter 7, our Lord said this, talking about the judgment. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? 
prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. To me, that is one of the most frightening passages in the Word of God. These people have made it to the end of time, folks. They have been faithful and dedicated to their religion, to their family, to their friends. And now they're standing at the, this is at the judgment. And they're standing there telling this God who will by no means clear the guilty, will not overlook the least of sin and the best of men. They're telling him, Lord, Lord, have we not what preached in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Nothing wrong with any of those three things. I hope by God's grace we preach his word, that we have done many wonderful works. But what's the difference between what we do as those born of God and what these people are doing? They think that what they do or what they've been able to do, what are they claiming? This is why I deserve life. How does our Lord respond? to these good moral attitudes and actions of these people. He tells them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This this ain't prostitutes and tax collectors. This is people spend their whole life in service to God and they're at the judgment and he he calls them workers of iniquity. There's a difference between evil and good. And only those born of God can see the difference between evil and good. Again, this religious world thinks a Christian is a person who's different now than what they were before. Quit drinking, quit smoking, quit lying, quit cussing. Started going to church, started reading the Bible. Remember what our Lord said in that passage I just quoted to you. I tell you, a true Christian is infinitely more than a person who's reformed themselves spiritually. Everything today in religion is called Christian, isn't it? We've got Christian bands, Christian schools, Christian companies, Christian everything. My question is this, who can really call themselves a Christian? I know this much in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and when they found him... He brought them him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christian first. First time they ever took the title to them. Where were they? At Antioch. What is a Christian? Well, first of all, you know a Christian? A Christian's a believer. But a believer in what capacity? Like Abraham. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. What did he believe? He believed on him who justifies who? The ungodly. Are you ungodly this morning? Huh? If you don't see yourself as ungodly in light of this God, who will by no means clear the guilty, you don't believe on the same God Abraham believed. No, you don't. Listen, as a believing saint, I've known the Lord now better. He's known me in my life for some 37 years now. I see myself as more sinful and more vile and more depraved and more ugly and more black than I ever saw myself when I first believed. Because I see sin in everything I do. I see sin in my preparation to preach. 
I see sin in my prayer. I find myself as I stand there praying. How many times do we pray it's all about us? What we want. What we need. When our prayer should be, not our will, but thy will be done. Secondly, a, a Christian is a son of God. Of his own will beguide he us by the word of truth that we should be called what? The sons of God. Thirdly, a Christian is an object of God's love. How do we know that? The verse that they take out of context is true to every child of God. For God so loved the world. The world who? The world of his elect. Those that he was given by the Father in everlasting covenant of grace. And finally, a Christian is a bond slave of Christ. What does that mean? We're bored through the ear. We're united to him. And we serve him not out of legal fear or mercenary promise of reward, but we serve him out of grace and gratitude. We love him. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. We see that love in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these are the doctrines that separate and distinguish us and what we believe from this religious world. And if a person doesn't abide in these doctrines, they're not our brethren, they're not our friend, but those who oppose themselves in the true and living God and the gospel that declares him as he really is. If any man abides not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath not God. But if any man does abide in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son.